So if you have a Bible, we are in Luke chapter 9. It's on page 1029 if you're using the Bibles that are provided for you. So just a, uh, a heads up of where we're heading here. Uh, next week will be the last, sort of the last week in the book of Luke for us for uh, at least for most of the summer. So on June 12th, uh, Reverend Michael Langer, uh, the minister uh, and founder of Faithful Presence, a ministry up in uh, Washington, D.C. He's been here before and preached with us. He's a friend of Hope of Christ. Uh, he'll be here uh, sort of kicking off our summer series in Psalms and Songs. And so throughout the summer, we'll be uh, looking at various psalms or, or other songs throughout Scripture. And, uh, and then uh, probably, you know, probably by mid-August, we'll, we'll return to, to Luke. This is odd because that means that uh, we're stopping halfway through a chapter. So we won't have finished, we won't even have finished uh, Luke chapter 9. Um, it's even more odd because Luke chapter 9, very much like the end of Luke chapter 8, as we were noticing, uh, all of Luke chapter 9 seems to kind of flow together. Uh, it all seems to be looking at uh, Jesus' interactions most specifically with his apostles. Um, and all of chapter 9 is very much a uh, kind of a pivoting chapter in the book of Luke. So, for example, at the very end of chapter 9, in, in verse 51, uh, Luke writes, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so Luke 9, now there's 24 chapters in Luke. And in Luke 9 already, at the end of Luke 9, he says, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face toward Jerusalem. And so from, from the end of chapter 9 through to the crucifixion, the rest of it is about this, his, what they call the road to Jerusalem. And so everything from here on is like Jesus is very intentionally moving toward Jerusalem and toward the cross and the tomb and his resurrection. Also, we see a pivoting point in chapter 9 because this is then where Jesus will begin teaching uh, the full aspect of the gospel or specifically why exactly he came. Twice in chapter 9, Luke will record where Jesus explains to his apostles that he will be uh, beaten, he will be arrested, beaten, uh, eventually crucified, and then on the third day rise again. So there's this, this, this kind of pivot even in his instructions where it used to be he was telling them to keep quiet about things. Now he's telling them openly exactly why he has come. It's also in chapter 9 where, we'll, where you see uh, the Father sort of roll back the veil briefly on his son so that, uh, so that three of his disciples are actually exposed to the full glory of Jesus, the Son of God, at the transfiguration. This happens in chapter 9. And then even right here in these first 10 verses, this is sort of a pivoting moment in the ministry of Jesus. Uh, he's now not just instructing 
his apostles, but now he's beginning to train his apostles in the work that they will do in his name. It's not just that Jesus has come to do a work, but because of the work that Jesus has come to do, he's now training and sending his apostles to do uh, that work as well. And so let's stand together and read these first 10 verses of of Luke chapter 9. And he called the 12 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and and healing everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. The grass withers, the flowers fade, and yet the word of the Lord remains forever. You may be seated. So again, as you see, all of Jesus' earthly ministry includes instruction, but there's, a, there's definitely a change now. His instruction includes preparing his apostles for a work that he is calling them to. They are not simply sponges that are absorbing instruction from Jesus, but there's been a purpose behind it, and he's now empowering them to go and to do a work in his name. And while certainly we want to remember, and we've pointed this out before, like the 12 apostles have a very unique calling. They have a very unique role uh, in in the life of Christianity in the, in the New Testament church. And while uh, that, you know, some of what we read here, we might say, well, isn't this just the apostles that he's calling? And we could say, yes, yeah, so there's probably part of that. But later in chapter 10, this calling will expand to uh, 72 other disciples, not just the 12 apostles. And in chapter 10, the instructions will be very similar. So it's not just the apostles who are, who are called and empowered and sent, but all disciples of Jesus Christ are called and empowered and sent. And it's, you know, you see that right there in the first verse. It says that those apostles that he called, he then empowered them and he sent them. This is true for all of us as Christians. We are called by Jesus Christ or we are empowered by Jesus Christ to do something that he's called us to, and then we are sent 
Uh, the, the gifting that God gives to us isn't just for us to feel a little bit better about ourselves, but the gifts that he's given to us are so that we will go and serve others, whether it's serving in the church or serving our community and evangelism, but the, the empowering that God gives is always toward an end of serving others, caring for others. The apostles are empowered, but it's not just so that they can feel like they're strong and could take on demons, but so that they actually would take on demons and cast out demons in the name of Jesus and and heal others. This is why I used 2 Corinthians 5 for our responsive reading. It starts out reminding us that it's the love of Jesus that compels us. We are compelled, we're controlled, we're moved along by the love that Jesus has for us. The love of Jesus compels the apostles. He's called them, he's brought them in, he's made them his friends, and now out of love for him, they are going out to serve others. It's out of love for Jesus that it's out of of the sense of Jesus' love for us, excuse me, that, that draws us to him and that sends us out to serve in his name. In fact, it's good for us to consider if, if I'm not impelled, if I'm not, if I don't feel a sense of urgency to work for Christ, do I truly understand how much Christ loves me. And so the first thing we want to look at here is that uh, these, the apostles are empowered by Jesus. Jesus gives uh, the power that he has had over demons and even over disease to his apostles. Up until this point, they simply watch, have been watching Jesus in his power over the, over the diseases, over the demons. But now he gives them the power. Now, obviously, again, you and I may not be empowered to cast out demons. That may not be the gifting that, that God has given to you and me. We may not be able to speak uh, diseases into remission as the apostles did. But are we not empowered to care for the sick? Aren't we empowered, aren't we sent by Jesus to go to the hurting? And we may not be empowered to cast out demons, but can we honestly look at this world and say uh, that the prince of the air, as, as Paul calls him, isn't still wreaking havoc on this world? Can we admit that that where sin is still present, the powers of Satan and demons are still at work. And aren't we sent into those lives, into those areas, to, to care for and to call to repentance sinners who are ensnared, as Paul says in Galatians, who are ensnared in sin, that in gentleness and love we can, we can actually win them out of that trapping of of sin. Again, from 1 Corinthians, we are ambassadors for Jesus' sake. 
We are ambassadors. An ambassador goes into a foreign land and acts on behalf of uh, the king or the president. Like the decisions the ambassador makes, they have to say, like, this is, like, I do this all in the name of uh, the king whom I am serving. And we are sent just like that into these foreign areas where, where sin and where sickness still have hold. And we, we live and we work and we love in the name of our king as his ambassadors because we've been empowered by Jesus. Uh, the gifts that he gives to us are so that we would serve others. Also, the gifts that he gives to us, you're empowered so that you would be sent. Like if we're called and empowered, we'll be sent. It's, if, if, if Christ has called you and he has given you gifts, it's so that you'll go and do something with them. Uh, the apostles are sent by Jesus. Uh, they didn't go on their own, but they went because Jesus sent them. In fact, the word apostle, that's all that it means. The word for apostle and the word for sent are the same words. So apostles are sent ones, and they've been sent to proclaim the kingdom of God. And this is pretty key because it's both in verse 2 and in verse 6. Again, we remember how Jesus would continually say that he was, he was sent to preach. He came to preach. He had to go to other towns to preach, to proclaim the good news. And now he's empowering the, the apostles, and he's sending them out, not just with some kind of miraculous power, but first and foremost to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to preach good news, to evangelize. Even if this were the only place that we saw this emphasis we would see just in this verse the importance of the preached word, the importance of the spoken message, the importance of, of proclaiming God's word through the church. But this isn't the only place we see that. And again, earlier in Luke, we saw uh, that Jesus went about proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Jesus said in, verse, in chapter 4, verse 43, uh, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. And it's for this purpose that he sent the 12. He sent the 12 out to preach, to proclaim the good news. In 2 Timothy 4, uh, one of the last letters that Paul writes, he writes to a young elder named Timothy. And chapter 4 begins, I charge you. I charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus. So whatever he's about to tell Timothy, it seems it's pretty important to Paul. Like, I am charging you, and God himself is, is witness to what I'm about to charge you with. And what does he say? He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season to rebuke, reprove, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. It is the, the, the church of Jesus Christ that is faithful to Christ must preach the word of God faithfully and must care for 
the needs of those that God brings to them or puts in their community. But a church that is focused only on on caring for the needs of those around it that does not preach the Word of God is not a church that's faithful to Christ. Many of you will uh, one day, uh, by God's calling, you'll leave hope of Christ. And I hope that as you go to other areas, that, that the priority that you place on finding a church community, a family, that, that at the top of the list will be, uh, is the Word of God preached? Is the gospel preached faithfully? Not do they have good programs for my kids? Not are they, you know, are they, they do they align with me politically? Not uh, do, we, do we agree on these kind of outside things? But, but is the Word of God preached? Is God's Word upheld as still central and still important and still crucial for understanding who God is and who we are and how we can be saved and how we ought to live as those who have been saved? Uh, the preached Word is central to God's, to Jesus' sending out of His apostles. Notice how Jesus, uh, just sort of in some subtle ways, uh, reminds the apostles that he will be caring for them, that they can serve, they can go, and they can trust God. That, uh, so he, he tells them, you know, even in just, he gives them even packing instructions. Like, you know, pack light. You're not going to need a bunch of stuff. Uh, in other words, God's going to provide for you. It's not that they don't need clothes. It's not that they don't need shelter. It's not that they don't need bread. They just don't have to pack it. Now, in one sense, this is just a short part of it because, you know, this is a short-term mission. They're going to come back. Jesus hasn't ascended. He's still here. He's sending them out. It's sort of a practice run for them, so they don't need to worry about these things because later he will tell them, okay, I, used, I told you you didn't need these things. You're going to need them now. I told you you didn't need a sword. You should probably sell some of your shoes and buy a sword because things are going to get messy here. Uh, But for right now, he's saying, you don't need these things. Just trust that God is going to take care of you and accept how God takes care of you. Like that instruction about, you know, when you enter one home, stay there. In other words, don't go to one home and then start reevaluating like, oh, oh, that guy had a swimming pool. Maybe I'm feeling called to stay at his house. Oh, she cooks better. I think I'm gonna, I think we're gonna stay there. He says, no, just wherever you go, whoever's showing you hospitality, stay there. And then when you leave, move on to the next town. Also, we see in verse 10, I know that uh, in our Bibles, verse 10 is, sort of starts the, the next section. But I think it wraps up this section very well, too, doesn't it? And we see uh, on their return, the apostles told him all that they had done, and, and he took them and withdrew, to a, withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. In, in Mark, it's even more uh, specific that Jesus is intentionally seeking to care for the apostles. He's drawing them back to himself. They're telling him about it. 
In Mark, he says, let's go away to a desolate place. And Mark even adds, for they had no leisure even to eat. And so uh, the work that they were called to was a strenuous work. And Jesus said, now come and let's rest. Let me, let me care for you. Let me provide for you. And so uh, there's just this sense that even as we're called and empowered and sent, and the things that we're sent to do are tiring and they, and they take work, Jesus says, I will care for you. I will feed your souls. Now, the final point of this section, though, is that you can be called and you can be empowered by Jesus to, to overcome demons and diseases. And you can be sent by Jesus to preach the good news of the kingdom. And, and you can even be cared for and provided for by Jesus. And even commended by Jesus for, for your faithfulness. And even after all of that, it's still very possible and even likely that some people will reject the message. That the very thing you were sent to do, people will reject and be disinterested in. And it will feel like they've rejected you. And so Jesus prepares his disciples for this rejection, for unbelief, for impenitent hearts. Essentially reminding us that, listen, our call, we're sent to plant and we're sent to water but we don't have the power to bring life. Only the Holy Spirit has that power. We are simply called to be faithful in the work that God has called us to. When the, when the people of Israel would travel outside of Israel and go into Gentile uh, lands, um, they, uh, they had sort of developed a custom. It wasn't a law, but it was more of a I don't know, maybe a habit. Like they'd come back, as they came back to Israel from, from their excursions in Gentile lands, just before they crossed the border, they would tap the dirt off of their feet before they came back in to Israel. And it was just sort of a, uh, you know, we're leaving the unclean land uh, and coming back into the clean land, into the holy land. And so it was just sort of a, just a gesture, uh, but it was a gesture that they all sort of had picked up on. And so it's interesting that Jesus uses this gesture and he applies it to unbelieving Israelite towns. Because remember, he's just sending them right now into other Jewish towns and villages. He's not sending them out into the nations yet. He's just sending them out briefly, and then they're going to come back. And it's interesting. He takes this, this sort of gesture, this, this custom that they had, and he said, listen, unbelief is unbelief. Like if you, if you go to a town, and they're even your people, and they reject you, and they reject the message, well, as you leave, tap the dust off your feet as a, as a sign to them, like, hey, you, you are rejecting the word and the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are rejecting the good news of the kingdom of God. There are always going to be those who can't hear the good news of the kingdom of God. And there's going to be a variety of reasons. Maybe, uh, maybe they aren't convinced of the goodness of God. Maybe they aren't convinced of the holiness of God. 
Um, maybe they aren't convinced uh, of their own sinfulness and need. But there will always be people who reject the message and the calling of God. In fact, a case in point is Herod. Uh, Herod the Tetrarch, also known as Herod Antipas. Here is, here is this, uh, this leader of part of the Jewish nation. He's, he's supposedly king over Galilee, or at least he wants people to call him the king. Uh, he rules over Galilee. Um, he's one of three sons of Herod the Great. So this isn't the Herod who uh, was over all of Israel when Jesus was born. He dies, uh, Herod that is, not Jesus, not yet anyway. Uh, uh, and when he died, he split up his territory uh, to his three sons. And so Herod Antipas is one of Herod the Great's three sons. Of course, one of his other sons is Herod Philip. So it's sort of like George Foreman and all five of his sons are George. So you know a guy is really full of himself when he's starting to name all of his kids after him. So this is Herod. This is Herod Antipas. This is Herod Philip. Oh, this is my granddaughter. Her name's Herodias. So yeah, good stuff there. But so Herod, Herod Antipas was not a great guy. One time he was visiting Herod Philip's territory and Herod Philip had married Herodias, uh, a, I guess, step-granddaughter. Anyways, she's also related to Herod the Great. But anyway, Herod Antipas, you got to follow me here, uh, de developed a liking for Herod Philip's wife, Herodias. She returned that liking, and so he stole his brother's wife, and so Herodias became Herod Antipas' wife and went and moved in with him. Well, I mean, these things might be normal in Rome, and that might be normal if you grew up in the 70s, but if you're trying to follow God's law, these things are atrocities. This is a heinous sin. And John, John the Baptist, called Herod out. John the Baptist was not afraid to point out this sin of Herod and Herodias. And, uh, and this sort of annoyed Herod, but it infuriated Herodias. And so she convinced Herod to have John arrested. And so you've seen, and, and we saw Rich took us through that passage where John is in prison and he sends his disciples uh, to encourage them to know who the Messiah is. Well, now we hear in this passage that at some point, Herod had beheaded John the Baptist. And if you're familiar with some of the other gospel accounts, you know that this happened on Herod's birthday. And so Herodias had a daughter uh, with Herod Philip, so it's Herod's stepdaughter, and for his birthday, he has his stepdaughter come and dance for him and for all of his guests. And she dances so well, and he's so enamored with her dancing that he makes this huge gesture, and he says, hey, whatever you want, great dancing, I'm going to give you a gift, up to half my kingdom, what would you like? I'll give you anything you want. And well, she's thinking, wow, anything I want, that's, 
this is a little unexpected. So she goes to her mom and she's like, so, so what should I ask for? And her mom, without even hesitating, says, you should ask for John the Baptist's head on a silver platter. And I imagine that her daughter thought, oh, oh, so not a chariot then? Oh, okay, not, not sandals. Okay, yeah, yeah. That's, that was the third thing I was thinking. That was, that was also, I was also thinking, yeah, a, a prisoner's head on a silver platter. That would be cool. But anyway, she does it. She takes it. He beheads John the Baptist. He doesn't say, well, that was a pretty foolish thing of me. I shouldn't have said that. He has to save face, and so John the Baptist is beheaded. But now, no sooner has Herod decapitated John, but he begins to hear about this guy, Jesus. And who is this? And what is going on? He's doing greater things than even John. And the rumors start to fly. Well, it's John. He's come back to life. No, no, it's Elijah. He's come back to life. No, no, it's another prophet. He's come back to life. And he can't get a straight answer, and he just wants to see who this guy is. Isn't it amazing what a guilty conscience can do? Actually, I think it's amazing what a guilty conscience can do and what a guilty conscience cannot do. A guilty conscience can make you feel sad or angry or paranoid. A guilty conscience can make you sick to your stomach, can make you feel ashamed or unworthy. A guilty conscience can make you sabotage your relationship or even just a date night or maybe an entire vacation week. A guilty conscience cannot absolve you. A guilty conscience can't justify you or justify your actions. A guilty conscience might make you feel the need for forgiveness, but it has no power to actually make you repent. Like, it's the Holy Spirit alone who gives us the power to repent. Like, a guilty conscience just fills me with fear and dread. Like, I know something needs to be fixed, but there's no possible way it can be fixed. I've done too much damage. The Holy Spirit, it's only the Holy Spirit that lets me say, I'm going to come and be completely open and honest about what I've done. And the only hope for a restored relationship is forgiveness. I mean, think about this. Herod ordered and approved of the execution of John the Baptist, the last Old Testament prophet. Could there be forgiveness for a sinner like that? Well, fast forward. I mean, we don't even have to fast forward very far. A year? Two years? To a man who oversaw and approved of the execution of Stephen, the first martyr of the New Testament. A man named Saul of Tarsus. Can there be forgiveness for sins so heinous? We know that there can. 
A guilty conscience will make you paranoid. The Holy Spirit will drive you to your knees in repentance. And if forgiveness for Saul, could there be forgiveness for, for you? Forgiveness for us? This is the message that the apostles were sent to proclaim the power of the kingdom of God, the good news that in Christ there's forgiveness. And they're sent still only knowing half the story. Isn't that amazing? Like Jesus calls and empowers and sends them to preach the good news of the gospel, and they don't even know the whole story yet. And yet you and I do. We know what it is that they're preaching. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Savior of sinners, died to save us from our sins so that we could have forgiveness and newness of life. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for the message of the apostles, for their faithfulness in answering your call, their faithfulness in preaching your good news in starting and establishing your church, that we also would be called and empowered and sent to bring the good news of the kingdom of God to our neighbors, to our loved ones, to our co-workers. That they would know, that we would know that it's not just a guilty conscience, but the life of Christ, the presence of the Spirit of God who empowers and emboldens us to confess our sin and to hear the words of forgiveness from Jesus. God, thank you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' name, amen.